All right. We are... What's that? Oh, some light. Okay. So we're finishing our last session on King Hezekiah, and we're going to do half an hour and then have 15 minutes of questions. Dean, do you, our Dean, do you have anything to say? All right. So Second Chronicles chapter 29 to 31, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of things in this story. Okay, so King Hezekiah becomes king after King Ahaz. And so you've got all kinds of idolatry that has been taking place. And so King Hezekiah becomes king. And we are told in chapter 29, verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. In the first year of his reign, chapter 29, verse 3, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord because the temple doors had been shut. Let's get worship going here in this place. But there is a problem because of all the abominations that have been taking place. So what he does is he is going, the first thing he's got to do is consecrate the house of the Lord. And in fact, the verb kadash, to be holy, occurs 11 times in chapter 29. 11 times. In the book of Chronicles, it occurs 81 times. Holiness is an important thing because you have a holy God in your midst. So you've got to consecrate. So he's got to spend time ensuring. He says, our forefathers, in verse 6, have been unfaithful. So we've got to cleanse the house of God. And he recognizes, again, he's theologically astute. He realizes what's been going on. Because he says in verse 7, they have shut the doors of the porch and they've put out the lamps. They've not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem. So he is discerning what the problem is and he is, has the remedy is it needs to be, there needs spiritual cleansing to take place before they do anything else. First action. Um, just being reminded of this, that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so he doesn't, he, this is not the time where he's getting out his military and he's fortifying. That's going to come up later. But he is going to ensure ritual purity and cleansing of the temple. And so who does he get? He gets his Levites. Here they are again. Gets them to help him out. Uh, just a reminder, as we think about in terms of ministry, is sometimes some of the early actions are working out what some of the sin is in a church and dealing with it. Sometimes it can be to do... I uh, have a, a friend of ours, uh, I was visiting um, in Connecticut, pastor, and within um, a few months when he started, it was his first pastoral position, started that found out that the youth pastor had been having relations with a girl in the youth group. Messy, messy. The guy ended up going to jail. It was, he said it was an awful, awful couple of years. And we could ask the question, gosh, were you called for that? Right. And so 
That, he wasn't doing any rebuilding. They've since renovated their sanctuary and it looked beautiful and all kinds of things, but they weren't doing any of that. The first thing they had to do was deal with what was the sin that had been going on. Sometimes it can be the issue of divisions in a church and a history of divisions, right? You've, so discerning what the spiritual issues are, Hezekiah discerns what needs to happen and he hits it head on as soon as he gets started with his reign. The issue is the temple has to be cleansed. So that's what happens. And then in chapter 29, verse 20, then what does he do? He, then he also recognizes that sacrifices need to be made to atone for the sins of their forefathers. And so verse 21 says they bring seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats. Number seven here is important because seven is completeness, right? It's for a sin offering for the kingdom. He's, they are officiating at the altar on behalf of the whole kingdom. He ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them at the altar. And then, no surprise, if you're making atonement, you've got to have blood for cleansing because the blood is used for atonement, for a purging, can be used for ransom, but also a purging. And that's what's going on here. They sprinkle it on the altar. They're cleansing it. Verse 24, the priests slaughtered them and purged the altar with blood. Blood, the term to atone, can, lots of debate whether it's covering over or whatever, but uh, the best book I know on it, Jay Sklar has written on Leviticus, and he's done his doctoral work on atonement in Old Testament in Leviticus, and argues that it is both ransom and purging. Both ransom and purging. In other words, the blood is paying the penalty that the sin deserved. There's a ransom being paid, and there's a d sinning or decontamination. It's a de-sinning. It's undoing the sin because the penalty for the sin is being paid through the animal's blood that is being shed. It is mitigated punishment. It is less than their sins deserve. So he gets the animals and then they atone, verse 24, for all Israel, for the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering. Notice that the priority of the king. And there we have our musicians again. They turn up. Verse 27. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And there's worship that starts to take place. And verse 29. After the completion of the burnt offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed down. There we have it again. And worshipped. King Hezekiah, verse 30, and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph, the seer. There we have a reference to the Levite being priestly. We've mentioned this. So they sang praises with joy and they bowed down and they worshipped. Now they could draw near now that sin has been dealt with in verse 31. Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices Thank offerings and all, and the assembly brought their offerings. Thank offerings and all those who are willing, and it gives a number of um, a number of the quantity of them as well. Chapter thirty. Now King Hezekiah sent to all Israel. 
Okay, there's our all Israel again. And Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. What is he doing here? That they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember I've said the land is not the central, it's the temple. That's the center. Worship is the centerpiece of the assembly to celebrate the Passover. Verse 2. The king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided, had counseled together to celebrate the Passover in the second month. So why did they need to counsel together? Because they were good Presbyterians and you always celebrate Passover on the first of the month or the first month and the first month has already passed and so we have to gather together and have an assembly to make the decision if we could celebrate Passover on the second month instead of the first month. And they agree. Worship is orderly but it is also disorderly. Because this is going to be a huge moment here where order is going to be set aside for the sake of reconciliation. Because what happens, Ephraim and Manasseh, remember we've talked about Ephraim and Manasseh, the northern tribes. Hezekiah is a uniter. Just let me mention here, we have two occasions of two different scenarios where we had Jehoshaphat had an alliance with Ahab. And that was a bad thing. And now he's inviting, these are the idolatrous. They've been worshipping idols for 200 years. So what's the difference here? He is inviting them to join him. But in order to join him, they have to humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and repent. So the difference with Jehoshaphat was that Ahab hadn't turned. He's doing all the stuff. Here, there is the... And why this is so amazing with what he's doing is, is that the, if you go back just a couple of chapters, that um, during the reign of Ahaz, the northerners had come and attacked the southern kingdom. They'd killed thousands of them. Think about this. They'd killed thousands of them. And then a prophet had stopped and said, you shouldn't be doing this to you. They'd taken a whole lot of exiles. And a prophet says, you shouldn't be doing this because these are your brothers. And so they end up sending them back to the south. This is Because this is Ahaz. He's getting judged because of his sin. That's why there's all the cleansing. But here's the other thing. These are the people who have just been attacking the southern kingdom. Now... In our churches, we divide about the color carpet, about where the coffee pot has been placed. Doxology. Doxology. Think about it. They have every reason to be divided. But and, and this is seen very positively. So Hezekiah invites them, and he wisely counsels together, seeks wisdom from others that they do it on the second month since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves and this thing seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they send these letters 
Uh, we have evidence of letters. Uh, we have the Lachish letters. When we say letters, they're on tablets. Uh, Lachish letters is a great example. And just about a year ago, they found a, a series of other letters that showed higher literacy um, in the ancient world than scholars had thought because these letters were military ones and they'd said about, remember to get oil and those sorts of things. So um, they send letters and they send these couriers to go and celebrate the Passover. And what do they say to them? Verse 6, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he may return to you. This is one of the promises, Leviticus 26 verse 30, if you're in the hand of your enemies and all these things that come upon you, if you return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice he doesn't say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls them Israel. They're called Israel. Right? Again, shift there. Return. Do not be unfaithful like your forefathers. Verse 8, do not stiffen your neck. We've talked about stiffening your neck as the opposite of humbling. But yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated, and serve the Lord. Verse 9, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive. Why? For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. Verse 9. We've talked about that that is the hallmark of the character of God in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And most people sitting in the pews don't know that. I know because I, I, when I'm teaching and I have, even when I teach Old Testament, sometimes we, after the class I have people that come up weeping and going, I feel like I've got to know who God is for the first time. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Hezekiah knows it. This is that Jonah knew it, remember? That's why he didn't want to. He knew God would even feel, even forgive the Ninevites. That's why he didn't want to go, because I know who he is. So important, we need to make known the name of God. So the couriers pass from city. They go through Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulon. Some laughed at them and mocked, but some from the men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulon, verse 11, humble themselves. If my people will humble themselves... Manasseh, of course, does the same thing coming up later. Verse 12, why the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. This was God loved this. He was giving them one heart, unified heart, to unify with the northern tribes. So they come into um, uh, Jerusalem, they're going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is connected with the Passover. They slaughtered the Passover lambs, verse 15. Verse 17. They've sprinkled the blood, verse 17. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to consecrate them to the Lord. So usually families celebrate, when they celebrate Passover, they, the family kills their own lamb. Now the Levites are doing it because there hasn't been time for them to consecrate themselves. Here's another place where the usual order of worship is set aside. I see no more. No, just kidding. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim, Manasseh, 
Iskar and Zebulon had not purified themselves. That's a pretty um, mild statement. Because they've been worshipping idols. And actually there is no purification right for idolatry. It is death. Yet they ate the Passover. And how did they, how did they get to eat the Passover? They are worthy of death with the idolatrous actions. They have humbled themselves. And what happens next? Hezekiah prays for them. Saying, may the good Lord pardon or atone, kafar. There is no atonement for their kinds of sins. And this is why it's really important to see King Hezekiah calls, why does he go back to the character of God? See, in the sacrificial system, the whole sacrificial system was set up for unintentional sins. You have Leviticus 1 to 3 is the first primary offerings that are used throughout worship and burnt offerings and so forth. But when you get to the sin offerings and the guilt offerings, if you look and read it through, it is for unintentional sins. What about all the intentional sins? Adultery. What's the offering for it? What's, what, can you, what animal can you kill for atonement for adultery? None. The adulterer. What about what can you what animal can you kill as a sin offering for idolatry? There is none. There is no legal prescription for intentional sins, except for fraud. There's one or two which is still, but for all these other sins, there's no sacrifice. But what happens in the times when God forgives his people when they've done one of these things, how, is it, how does that happen? The first example is the golden calf story, when they've built the golden calf. And when Moses intercedes, he doesn't say, oh, they've just entered into a Mosaic covenant. He doesn't go back to the legislation of the Mosaic covenant for the forgiveness because there is none. And he is appealing to God in his mercy to forgive their sins. That's why Hezekiah has it at the beginning here, because that's the exact time when God reveals his character. And here's the other interesting thing. In the prayer of Solomon, if our people have sinned, and there is no one who does not sin, and they humble themselves and they pray and they seek your face and they return to you, would you hear and forgive their sins? He doesn't say, and he's in the temple where they're sacrificing, he doesn't say appeal to the sacrifice, he's appealing to the grace and mercy of God. And in fact, that grace and mercy of God is going to be legalized under the new covenant because God promises to forgive sins. And this is hints of the new covenant that's coming because the animals can't pay for their sins. 
And Hezekiah knows it and he says, but if you return to the Lord, he's going to be gracious and compassionate to you. In the golden calf story, they didn't even return. It was just because Moses was praying on their behalf. Here, Hezekiah prays, and this is the outworking of 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. If my people will humble themselves, but the difference is that it's not the people praying, it's Hezekiah praying on their behalf. And so he prays for them saying, may the good Lord pardon or atone. He knows atonement. There's no atonement for this. Everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. There we have it again, the verb darash, to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers. Though, by the way, it's not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary, even though he is such a guy who's into the purification laws and the rules. Gosh, we, what, what provision is there? And here you have it. And what do you have next? Verse 20. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and he healed the people. This is where the language coming and I will hear from heaven and I will forgive and I will heal the land. Here's the healing that's taking place and it is a healing from sin and uncleanness. That's what's taking place. And so the whole people will celebrate together and there is great joy and we even find out uh, there's all um, animals that are being sacrificed. Verse 25, all the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites. And notice who's coming. Also the sojourners who came from the land of Israel. So we have it there again. It's both northern, picking up the genealogies at the start. Verse 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this since the days of Solomon. And then he's going to continue with his reforms in chapter 31. He gets rid of some of the altars in the north. Focus on the law of God, verse 4. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion, the tithe, giving it to the priests and the Levites. And you should be saying an amen right there. Why? So that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. See that? The teaching of the law of the Lord. And so they bring in all the tithe, whole other topic, a great topic. But notice verse 10, Azariah, the chief priest, everyone's giving after they've been cleansed, their celebration, verse 10. And they say, the priests say, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over. Remember Deuteronomy 28, God will bless you if you obey and cause there to be left over. Remember I said it wasn't riches, it's left over. And Hezekiah sees and he says, what is all this food here and everything? And he said, the people have given abundantly. So verse 20 of chapter 31 Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So great story. I think it is a very good example to be reminded of the importance of reconciliation for the people of God. 
the own, my own church that I'm um, part of for the past two years, they've had a history of two different church plants where there have been some divisions and splits. Uh, we have a new pastor who's been there for a few years, and uh, probably about six months ago, he, one of the church splits had actually closed, and he was going to meet with some of the people in the church, and I know him well, and I sent him my section on Hezekiah. Um, because reconciliation is, and some of those, couple of those members were just re-part um, of the church this last Sunday. Um, let me just read something for you, and then um, I was going to talk about Lachish as well in the next chapter, but I'm going to leave that great chapter. After these great acts of faithfulness, the Assyrians come against Jerusalem and attack Hezekiah. And this is really the test of all time. Um, the account of the Assyrians, the account of the Assyrians is recorded in the Taylor prison. And you'll have to wait till, you, till the commentary comes out to read about it. Uh, when I was at Cambridge, I learned Akkadian for a couple of years. And this was one of the inscriptions that we read and I just was blown away when I read all about King Hezekiah, the Taylor prism, Sennacherib's attack. And basically, um, the Assyrians are attacking the city of Lachish. And terrible, hideous stuff that happens at Lachish. You see it in the British Museum. They come against Jerusalem, but they don't defeat the city at this time. And it is because you have prayed. If you read about what archaeologists say, they will say, and I was in a class one time at Harvard with a top North American Assyriologist who was talking about this, and he says, we don't know why the Assyrians couldn't take Jerusalem at this time. <laughs> so, um, I want to finish with uh, a story about reconciliation that we've been talking about. Um, this is from a book called um, turbulent times, um, and this is on the Casket Empty website. This is a blog that David Palmer wrote, but I'm just going to pick up the excerpt from this book. Um, and this is in the book from Turbulent Times. On Sunday, November 22nd, 2015, a gentleman from Sudan approached me after church and introduced himself as Brother Yasir. He mentioned the name of a common friend who had advised him to attend our church. And this, by the way, this blog is Why Church? And David talks about the fact that people are saying, what, what should we even go to church for anymore? Why church? He mentioned the name of a common friend who had advised him to attend our church. I happened to be free for lunch, and so I invited him to join my family and a few friends at a nearby restaurant. And over the meal, he shared this story. And this is the author of the book, uh, who is in uh, Lebanon, a pastor in Lebanon. And he shared the story of this brother, Yassir. He came from a family of devout Sunni Muslims. One of his uncles played a major role in starting the Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan. And another one was one of the top chiefs in the secret service in northern Sudan. When Yassir was only eight years old, his brother took him to a religious school far from home and left him there. He did not know whether his father would ever return. And for two years, Yassir um, and father went back home. Yassir attended this school. There he met, this is, so this is Yassir who's been trained um, in, 
um, in the Quran. He attended a local school. There he met a Christian boy called Zachariah, who was in the first, who was the first in his class and used to sit next to him. Yasir regarded him as an infidel. So one day he and a friend took Zachariah into the forest and they set about beating him to death. After breaking his bones, they left him there to die. Yasir's family was also involved in persecuting Christians. In fact, one day his uncle was sent to arrest a pastor. When he arrived at the church, he decided to wait until the service was over before making the arrest. Meanwhile, the preacher, not knowing what was going to happen, was preaching from the book of Acts, telling the story of Saul's conversion. At the end of the service, Yasir's uncle went up to the pastor and asked him, why were you preaching about me and sharing my stories? The pastor explained that he was telling a story from the Bible, but Yasir's uncle did not believe him until the pastor opened the book of Acts and read it to him. Yasir's uncle was captured by the power of the word of God and stayed until early the next morning asking the pastor questions. The conversation ended with Yasir's uncle giving his life to Jesus. His conversion led to his being put in prison, yet there he was very active in evangelizing at many and coming to faith because of him. One day, Yasir's cousin became very sick, which led to his being admitted to the hospital in a coma. His father would, could not go to him, for he was in prison, but he arranged for two Christian men to go to the hospital to pray for his son. The men arrived while Yasir was there, visiting his unconscious cousin, and Yasir watched as the two messengers went inside to pray for the boy. When they had finished praying, he saw the boy open his eyes, start to remove all the tubes attached to him, and on the same day, the boy was healed and went out to play. Yasir was dumbstruck. How could the prayers of two infidels be heard by God? And how could God respond and answer these prayers? To cut a long story short, Yasir ended up giving his life to Jesus. As a result, his family disowned and abandoned him. More than that, they went to a graveyard and put his name on a grave as a sign that he was dead to them. Rejected and persecuted, Yasir decided to leave Sudan. Before leaving, he went to the, and stood at his grave and wept and wept. He loved his parents and was in agony that they had rejected him. It was the darkest moment in his entire life. As he was standing there, he felt a hand touching his shoulder and a voice said, Yasir, don't cry, your grave is empty and so is mine. He felt God's amazing presence and a calling from God to go and serve him and witness to the resurrection. He left Sudan, continued his studies in Islamic studies, and earned an MA from Columbia University. Today, he's a lecturer and a pastor of a migrant church in Germany. And I've almost finished my story. 25 years later, Yassar visited Egypt to teach at a pastor's conference. While speaking and sharing his testimony, he noticed that one pastor with a broken arm and a broken leg was in tears. After Yassar was finished, he went to this pastor and he asked him why he began weeping. The pastor, blind in one eye and physically fragile, told him, I am Zachariah, the little boy you beat 25 years ago. Then Zachariah opened his Bible and there on the first page of his Bible was the name of Yasir written by the hand of the Christian teenager he had tried to kill. Zachariah said, since that day I've not stopped praying for you. It is wonderful to know that you're a follower of Jesus. 
Yossi himself was in tears now, and he stood in front of Zechariah and saw what the beating had done to him. And he saw also his loving heart, and he could only ask, what kind of religion can make one love an enemy so much? And this is now David Palmer. Why church? The question, why church cannot be answered from a distance? You must come close to see. When we approach the church, we discover a people who have received and extend the transforming love of Jesus Christ. One of those people is Yasir. If there's someone named Jesus Christ teaching people to live and love like this, then I would not want to miss out on being part of the church. Amen. Reconciliation that's reflecting what's going on in the story of King Hezekiah. Um, great story for us to reflect upon, and it also reminds us of some of the things we divide about. It's just such trivial things. So we need, again, the global church to help remind us what this is all about. All right, we have an opportunity for questions, and then do we try? Do you need something to tell us? Great. Questions. Oh, I think I've started over here, yep. Do you want people to use the... Yes, that, that is, um, this is from the Casket Empty website blog. So if you go to Casket Empty, there's a blog. And this is, I have uh, read the book actually, Turbulent Times. Um, and I, I don't, oh, here we go. Okay, so here's the following Jesus in turbulent times. And the author is Hikmat, H-I-K-M-A-T, Kashu. K-A-S-H-O-U-H. And it's on discipleship for like refugees, um, and I think it's in Lebanon, the pastor. And David Palmer was doing a casket empty conference there and with this teaching refugee pastors. Yes. K-A-S-H-O-U-H. Taking in consideration there are Australian vowels in there. <laughs> it was brutal when I was learning Hebrew because I would, you know, I'd have the professor go, and what vowel is that? And I'd go, A, you know. He's like, like, you know, is that an A or an E? And I'm like, and so I ended up just doing like, okay, A, <laughs> patak in Hebrew. <laughs> so that was with the Australian vowels. Okay, any other yeah, Carol, I was struck by your comment about uh, the great saying, the, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As I understand, one of the most common refrains in the Old Testament, yeah. and by this person's response. And I struck, I'm reading uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he talks about, on one hand, we're, we're hesitant to talk about God's anger. Yeah. You know, from Josephus on, this yeah. kind of rational and God's yeah. impassable. But then he also says what we miss is that anger of God is so out of God's character. Right. And that it's the hesed and all this of God. How can we as pastors, do you have some advice? How do we yeah. uh, help our people who so much have this just false view of the Old Testament that, that, that this God is a different God? And I'm just like so frustrated with this. But do you have yeah. some? I mean, I do think that's one of the roles of teaching the narrative because... Uh, 
you, for example, you see 200 years where they worship idols and God takes 200 years before he destroys them. Now, when we do our cafeteria-style Old Testament, we just pick up the destroy piece. We don't know the context. So you have to set it in context. And let me just give you an illustration of the importance of context. So if you saw my husband outside our house with our golden doodle we have, she's a great dog, but she's a bit on the silly side at times. If you saw him screaming at her and kind of get like hitting her, you would want to call the dog protection place. But if you knew that the house was right near a road and she was about to run out to the house, out onto the road and get killed, it changes how you interpret the events. He's actually doing it to save her life, right? So what people do is they have a quick snapshot of the Old Testament and they don't, un you have to see the context. I think when you see the context, you start to say, like, why doesn't God destroy them? Why does, what is he doing? So, and I th so you have to tell it in the story. The other quick illustration is um, years ago when Lord of the Rings came out, my husband has been a Lord of the Rings. I never, didn't grow up with Lord of the Rings. My husband read all the Lord of the Rings, and I have, you know, say you've got Hobbit feet, this is a Hobbit, you know, he loves all the stuff. When the movie first came out, I didn't know anything about the movie, and he asked me to, to you know, to go and see it. So, and the start of the movie has, you know, all the green, and I thought, oh, this looks like a BBC, you know, Pride and Prejudice, it's that beautiful music, and there's greenery, and I'm like, oh, this looks, this is lovely, it's poetic, and... But then you get to, they get out of the shire and then you get to the pub and then they've got the dark horse, you know, the horses, and then you've got them all with the sliver and the, you know, and I'm, now I'm thinking, oh, I think this is a guy movie. And I said to my husband, I can't believe we're still married, but we are. I've since repented. He loves Lord of the Rings so much. I said, um, I said to him, oh, I think this is kind of a bit of a guy movie. And I said, oh, I, I might just have a wander around and I'll see you back. I didn't do it. I can't believe I did it. And it struck me afterwards. I had no idea what the story was about. And I just looked at one scene and thought, oh, I don't really like it. And of course, when you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, I mean, you, you have to have the dark scenes to understand what the whole narrative's about. And so I think we've got to put the scenes in the narrative um, and help people to see it. So I think you've got to, if someone has questions, say, I'd love you. Let, let's, you've got to somehow try and think about how to unpack the narrative in a way that's concise to help people get the big picture. Because I do think, um, I do think God, his character is very, very compelling. And he's not like us. That's why David knows it. Choose your judgment. Oh, better to fall in the hands of God than man. He knows it. And so um, we've really got to help people to see who God is. That doesn't mean he's not holy. And, of course, David Wells has written the holy love of God. We like the loving God without the holiness, right? So we don't want to, you know, he's also the God that broke out against Uzzah for his holiness. So we don't want to have one, but surely his grace and mercy is the hallmark of his character, which is seen so profoundly in the cross. Hey, Carol, uh, yep. which is the translation you've been reading from this week, and which one do you recommend for our studies of Old Testament and Chronicles? Yeah. So I've been using, the, I use the New American. Uh, in the study guide, we have the ESV. Um, so, I th you know, I think, 
I think it is helpful for your own personal study to have something that's a little bit more wooden at times. I like that because I know kind of what's underneath it. But I think, um, you know, when for, for preaching, I think you're using what your congregation is using, right? So if it's... And, and there's good... Tra NIV's a good translation, ESV and so forth. Um, but I like... So... I've been using New American for years, and I didn't make the switch to the ESV. I didn't like what the ESV did in Genesis 3, but it's another. <laughs> yeah. The theme of uh, the whole book here seems to be for us to humble ourselves. Can you just give us a quick glimpse into your own personal life, yeah. how you are able to humble yourself? Yeah. Um, I think humbling yourself in terms of submitting to the will of God and his, and it, it's been coming back to that whole story that we've been looking at with the call of God is the work of God in the unexpected places, but also in the difficult places. And the, the, so the personal submission to that, you know, the, I think... Um, I mean, we need others not to think too highly of ourselves. We need good friends around. Australians do that really well. <laughs> we have the tall poppy syndrome. Oh, you think you're getting like a tall poppy? <laughs> oh, we'll just cut you down. <laughs> so, so I think you need good friends around you, good friends around you, I think, to, to be able to give that word of rebuke of like you look like you're testing your own heart. Do I care about something more than I should? If it's about my name or so, so being about, um, I mean, I had to think about that when I was said no to, I was asked to do a commentary, two volume commentary on Genesis. Um, very, you know, it was a very, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, and I was always my dream to, to um, write on Genesis. Um, so I had to ask myself, am I doing it because of my name? So, or when you get asked to speak or do something, that's right. That's the pride. Am I doing it because I want to be important? And I have to ask myself that. And and the other part is, at the end of the day, it wasn't about what my dream is. It was what God's dream is. And so that was a that was a painful submission in my mind. I thought, no, I don't think that's what the Lord wants because I want to help involved in the casket empty projects with the global church. And so that's where I feel like in my, whatever the Lord has left for me in my stretch, that's what I want to devote my time to. Um, I'm writing a book on the handbook of the Pentateuch as well. So that's kind of a, another project. But so that was, that was the thing of like get, evaluating my own heart. Am I doing something because of pride? Um, when I talk to someone and I suddenly tell them how many people were at a conference, like, wh why did you have to say that, Carol? What's, what's going on in your heart that you felt you had to tell them that? So, so uh, you know, having those close checks to say, you know what, you don't, you don't need to say that. So checking my own motivation in my heart, um, and I think the whole prayer and the posture of being in the Word and that posture of prayer, I think, as well, is important. Yeah. I invite you to comment some on preaching specifically from these historical books. Yeah. I'm sure many of us have 
preached from the Old Testament, consistent out of Genesis or Exodus or Isaiah, yeah. the Second Chronicles still feels extra intimidating. Yeah. So help us understand, and perhaps you've seen good examples of, you know, because I don't want preaching to be academic teaching. So how do we balance the expository yeah. and the proclamation of good news? Yes. I hate saying we have to tack an application on, oh, but, no, that's, but I think uh, you've helped us see that, so maybe pull some of that together for us. Yeah, and, and I, um, you know, I think with the Old Testament, it's same with when I do the casket empty seminars, especially if it's in a lay context. I mean, I'm teaching on one thing and then I'm, I'm moving into application because we, I think we have to do that because we have to, people need to know it's relevant to their lives. Of course, that's true of all scripture, but I think especially with Old Testament. So um, the series that I'm writing in, it has 40% application and it is also Christological. So they're wanting you, which we're doing throughout, I'm doing throughout, not every chapter, because that's not my philosophy. Some are, like Tim Keller's a bit more, you know, everything leading. I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm more Christotelic, right? It's leading the narratives, leading there, not that every chapter is pointing to Christ. And there's a difference there. But so, so I think um, uh, I would, I would say take some of the key kings and big stories and pick up the, th the common themes of prayer and, um, and the big themes that are picking up and then using those. So I've done more heavier content here because of the nature of the group. So, um, but if I was doing something in a church context, you would have far more application. Um, and in terms of the intimidation factor, um, I was intimidated writing the commentary. I was intimidated learning Hebrew. I say it to students all the time when they're like, you know, you do it because it's the word of God. So you have to get over the intimidation factor at some point. And does someone, does someone need to write a commentary on Chronicles so that it can be preached? Yes. Does someone need to preach on Chronicles because it's the whole counsel of God? Yeah. So um, do the stuff on Leviticus and all that and think how that's intimidating. Right? That's a whole other realm of intimidation. I mean, I've worked in Leviticus, and it's like, you know, it's complicated. But again, someone has to do the work. Someone's got to do the work, and my philosophy is it's the word of God. I try and encourage students. Yeah, it's work. What, I mean, what can I say to you? It's hard. You, didn't, you know, God never said Hebrew had to be, you know, had to be joyful about it. You just have to do it, <laughs> you know. And it helps in your prayer life, so that's good. Second... You ready to? Last question. Um, you spoke a lot beautifully about God being our helper and a help in times of trouble. As your final thing here, would you be willing to go back to Genesis and the male and female and how woman is a helper to the man, a help me to the man, and yeah. how that word is that the same word, help? Yes, and, and I can do this quickly because I know you guys are ready to. I can do a quick, um, so yeah, the term helper, Azer, is used in Genesis, uh, and I think I mentioned, I know I mentioned it a little bit, but um, so obviously debate about what it is. I think often people think of helper from their own family model, what their mum did. I mean, a lot of people do have categories of what a helper is through that. So, um, but the fact that it's a military term, it comes immediately after the command is given, I think. Adam and Eve is meant to help him keep the command of God against the enemy. That's the battle, right? We, we divide here, but the battle is the enemy that's coming. So I think that's why it's a military term. He's an unclean animal. They should have 
got rid of the unclean animal and, um, and, and spoken the word of God. So I think, um, I don't think the helper answers the question of the relationship between men and women in terms of some of the complementarian versus egalitarian. I don't think you get that from helper. I think that comes in other places. Um, in Genesis 1, when it says, be fruitful and multiply and let them rule over the cosmos, you know, rarely do you hear any sermons that God, when God says he wants human beings ruling, it's, one is it's, it's not just a king, it's human beings. And then the other thing is it's men and women. Where's that come from? Plural verbs. So that's, that informs part of my theology as well. Great. Carol, as, um, as we wait for your book to come out, yeah. what commentaries do you recommend in Chronicles now? Um, they might go back and preach on this. Yeah, I think the New American Commentary series is probably one of my favorite. So the New American, um, because they are pretty, they're um, rich theologically. They have some Hebrew in footnotes, but not in the main text. Um, so the um, Mark Boda has written a good commentary, but you're not going to find as much on application, but it's a good theological commentary. The really good ones are highly technical, but they don't, help with the preaching. So wait for hers. That's what we should do. Uh. <laughs> oh, Merrill. Merrill's commentary. Eugene Merrill. Great. Eugene. Okay. Eugene Merrill. Great commentary. That would be my top one. Just put that at the top of the list. And then New American Second. Uh, so you could pray for me when you think about Chronicles <laughs> to pray for me. So um, I'm hoping to hoping to have the manuscript in by the end of summer, uh, and it is Zondervan Story of God series. Zondervan Story of God, and Tremper Longman is the editor of the series. Well, we want to thank you, Carol. We have a yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you.